Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Hey there. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the podcast for music lovers, full of thought-provoking interviews and conversations like you've never heard before with some of the biggest names in the biz. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from your favorite artists, from classic rock and country to timeless music everyone enjoys. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview. I'll put one on if you want me to. Weird Al Yankovic. There we go. That's and okay. you that... pardon me saying so, you look more ridiculous already. Like a surgeon. This one-of-a-kind musical comedian has spent decades lampooning some of the most popular stars of our time. One of my favorite reactions was, uh, was Kurt Cobain, who said that he didn't realize that he'd made it until he heard the Weird Al parody. You have this talent, I'm tempted to say genius, for making fun but not being mean. How do you do that? I like to say that I'd, I'd rather, you know, poke them in the ribs than kick them in the butt. The one and only Weird Al Yankovic. Tonight on The Big Interview. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank really you. Thank you. Welcome to chaos. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Which I know is alien to you. Uh, looks like my house, but different. <laughs> if a music historian wanted to research popular music from the last several decades, his or her first bit of homework might be to listen to the anthology of Weird Al Yankovic. And that's because Weird Al has been writing parodies of the music world's biggest songs for more than 30 years. His first big hit was the Grammy-winning Eat It, a parody of Michael Jackson's platinum smash, Beat It. Through the decades, Weird Al has lampooned everyone from Madonna like a surgeon. To Pharrell Williams, to Lady Gaga. I'm sure my critics will say it's a grotesque display. Well, they can bite me, baby, I perform this way. At first glance, his work may seem juvenile. It definitely appeals to a younger audience, but don't let that fool you. Weird Al is a skillful lyricist and a chameleon-like performer. This is where all the Hawaiian shirts are that I'm allowed to keep in the house. His closet is an archive of his unique career. What is that, a giant, uh, a giant Spam, of course, right. and a giant Campbell's soup can, as one has in their closet. <laughs> Weird Al has won multiple Grammys for his work. His 14th album, released in the summer of 2014, debuted at number one. The first time in 50 years a comedy album has done so. Someday, someday they'll be sorry. They'll be eating breakfast or something, and all of a sudden they'll say, hey, we screwed up. 
never should have fired George Newman because he's got imagination. He also created and starred in the popular film UHF. Oh, jeez, you better not let Big Edna see that. She'll have a fit. Big Edna, Big Edna. He's not like a broken record. Why are you so afraid of that pathetic tub of lard? Oh, this is a story about a guy named Alan. He lived in a sewer with his hamster pal, but the sanitation workers... Really He's had a Saturday morning television show and has even written children's books. They see me mowing my front lawn. I know they're all thinking I'm so wide and nerdy. Just too wide and nerdy. Born and raised in Southern California, Alfred Yankovic was an only child. His father was of Yugoslavian descent, his mother English and Italian. Throughout his life, he developed a knack for standing out. At the age of seven, he took up the accordion and started writing his own music. Now you won't find me bragging about my big green station wagon. Jankovic was inspired by musical parodists of the 1960s like Alan Sherman. Hello, mother. Hello, father. And Stan Freeberg. The legend you are about to hear is true. Only the needle should be changed to protect the record. He was valedictorian of his high school class, graduating at the age of 16. He went on to earn a degree in architecture in college. I never bother with baggies, glass jars, Tupperware containers, plastic cling wrap, really a no-brainer. I just like to keep all my flavors sealed in tight with aluminum foil. Weird Al has won praise the world over for his zany songs and outrageous persona. But as we discovered on a recent visit to his tranquil home high up in the Hollywood Hills, there is another deeper, more thoughtful side to Al Yankovic. Well, again, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. And what a beautiful home. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, you know what I'm struck by? And we'll get to some serious business. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm struck by? This is a, a beautiful home set high in the hills of Los Angeles with great views, very modern, mm -hmm. with a quietness to it, a tranquility to it, because you have water running through the place. It seems in such great contrast to when we see you perform. <laughs> is that by design? Well, you know, some people might expect that I would live in wacky land. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't necessarily look at my house as a retreat, but I guess it does provide that for me. I'm, I'm five minutes up the hill from Sunset Boulevard, but it just feels like I'm kind of away from things. Um, we have a, a beautiful view of the city, but we feel somewhat removed. Um, and it's sort of an extension of my personal uh, preference of style, and my wife's as well. We both like clean, modern things. Uh, I've got an architecture degree. And uh, I've always gravitated toward the more modern, sleek kind of buildings. This house is not a Richard Meyer design building, but it's sort of a knockoff. It's, it's very much his kind of style, which uh, was one of the things that attracted me to it. Well, explain to me, and to our audience, if you will, how you got from an architectural degree to Weird Al. Well, I couldn't think of a better uh, way to prepare myself for my current line of work than getting an architecture degree. <laughs> Um, you know, it was just one of those things, I, when I was 12 years old, I had a guidance counselor that uh, talked me into becoming an architect. Uh, I had actually said, 
that I would like to be a writer for Mad Magazine at the time. <laughs> and my counselor said, yeah, I don't know, I don't think, why don't you do something like an adult would do? Like, you know, you're good at drafting, you're good at math. And um, I was talked into architecture. But I, I learned, I think my junior year in college that it wasn't really my passion. It wasn't what excited me. Everybody else in my class was all, you know, into the form following the function and they just loved the whole business. And I, I just didn't have that fire in my belly for it. And uh, it was kind of a scary time because I didn't know really what I was going to do with my life. I didn't, I certainly didn't think I'd be able to make a living in show business. You know, I played the accordion for crying out loud. <laughs> so unless I was going to be doing the bar mitzvah and wedding circuit for the rest of my life, I couldn't figure out exactly what I was going to do. Um, but after graduating, I you know, knocked on a few doors and I uh, uh, tried to take advantage of the uh, airplay I was getting on the Dr. Demento radio show. And, uh, and luckily, I was able to get a record deal. And against all odds, I'm still doing what I love to do. It was what, the radio program? Uh, the Dr. Demento show, um, he did a, um, a local version in Los Angeles and he did a nationally syndicated version. And basically, it was a radio show where he would play from his own extensive collection of comedy and novelty records. Everything, you know, going back to the turn of the century. Um, the people that inspired me from the show were people like Spike Jones, Alan Sherman, Stan Freeberg, Tom Lehrer, people like that. Uh, and that really exposed me to a lot of things I'd never heard before. And, and that's what inspired me to start sending in tapes and to continue doing the kind of music that I do today. And while you were oscillating from architecture to this I'll call crazy radio show, were your parents scratching their head and saying to themselves, what's happened to our son? He was good at math, he was good at science, he was terrific at school, he graduates at 16, he's valedictorian, we send him off to college, he's great at architecture, but he wants to do this crazy radio stuff. If, if my parents were concerned or worried, they did a pretty good job of hiding it from me. I, I think they always knew that uh, I had a pretty good head on my shoulders and I wasn't impulsive and I wasn't one of these kids that was going to run off to Hollywood and, uh, you know, take my shot at stardom. It, that wasn't what I was all about. I, you know, I, I had a, always had a job. Uh, I mean, when I was trying to get a record deal, it was basically a minimum wage day job, but I, I always was pretty adult-minded uh, and I always made sure I could take care of myself. And, and my, my parents, um, as far as I knew, never really worried about me because they knew that somehow I would land on my feet. They, they said, you know, you can come back home and live in the garage anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me what happened. You start sending tapes to the radio program and then what happened? Well, it took, it took a few years, but, um, you know, I, I built up a cult following through the Dr. Demento show. Um, being on the Dr. Demento Funny Five or Top Ten doesn't necessarily translate to a record deal, so... Funny Five or Top Ten? At, at the end of every show, he would uh, play the most requested songs of the night. Uh, for a while, it was the Funny Five, and, and then I think it was the Top Ten. Uh, and a lot of times, my songs would be... Uh, uh, I'd have several songs on the countdown. These are songs you were sending in to him on, on audio tape. That's correct. So this is before I had a record deal. This is like, you know, I first, uh, uh, I think 1976 was the first time he played one of my recordings uh, on the radio. And it was literally recorded on a cassette tape recorder in my bedroom, just me and the accordion. Very primitive. And he told me that the reason he played that particular recording was because I was a teenager with an accordion. He didn't think, he thought the song was okay, but it wasn't anything that special. But the fact that I was playing an accordion and obviously thinking I was cool, <laughs> he thought that was pretty amusing. So you do this for a while and you're making some headway, developing cult following. That developed into what? Well, it took about two years between college and getting the first record deal. So I worked in a, in a mail room up until then. Uh, and we basically approached every single record uh, 
label in town. And everybody said, oh, this is great. This is really clever and creative and brilliant and funny. We're not interested. Because it was basically novelty music. Anytime you're mixing comedy with pop music, it's considered novelty. Uh, and uh, it, that was at a point in time where people just didn't see the, the value in it. They thought uh, it was basically the domain of one-hit wonders. It was a very ephemeral art form. Uh, novelty artists have a habit of having a big hit and then disappearing quickly into obscurity. Uh, and and uh, they said, you know, we think you're great, but we want, we want to have a, a, a roster of artists that have long careers, so I'm afraid we're not going to have to be able to work with you, which is the big irony of my, uh, <laughs> my career because I've now lasted 30 plus years, which is considerably longer than a lot of, uh, a lot of the people I was making fun of in the early days. <laughs> You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Weird Al. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Weird Al. But I want to back up for a moment what we call on television a wide shot. All right. <laughs> weird Al. First of all, are you weird? Well, not all the time, certainly. I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of, uh, I'm chameleon-like. I, I adapt to certain situations. Like, this is a very kind of low-key interview. If you're a, a loud, uh, you know, morning radio disc jockey being wacky, <laughs> I would be giving you a different kind of energy. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm a much different person on stage than when I'm at home or when I'm out shopping for, for groceries. Well, you have a tremendous reputation and a very big following, but for somebody who says, I don't know who this person is, who are you? First of all, who are you professionally? Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm known for doing uh, comedy music. Uh, I'm probably best known for doing song parodies, taking popular songs of the day and tweaking them and, and doing puns on the title and, and kind of taking them in a different direction. So I'm, I'm probably most known for that. Uh, but my material uh, is half parodies and half originals. It's all comedy, though. So uh, I've, uh, I, I'm mostly known as a, a comedy recording artist. Who are you as a person? The person, oh my goodness. Uh, well, I, you know, the weirdness aside, I, I still tend to think of myself as kind of a, a quiet, withdrawn guy. I mean, uh, my celebrity has allowed me to uh, be a little bit more uh, outgoing in social situations, uh, but I, I still am, feel, always feel awkward uh, when I'm in any kind of social gathering, which is one of the reasons why my wife completes me. She's, she's, she's the outgoing side of our family unit, and, and um, I, I lean on her quite heavily <laughs> in social gatherings because she'll be the person, you know, making conversations and keeping, keeping it going, and I'll, I just try not to fall over. You said you care about your work, you care about your family. What else do you care about? I enjoy a good burrito. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. well, you and I share that. Well, of course, of course. Um, I mean, that's that's. Um, those are the two big ones. I, I can't think of anything uh, off the top of my head. You want to? Did you have anything in mind? Is this leading? No, I'm, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get behind the mask. Okay. As you know, in, in, into the person. Okay. I, you, I, you like to walk outdoors. You like to fish. You like to hunt. You like to. 
Read? Mm, well, uh, I like to read. Uh, I, I surf online. I probably spend more time with my laptop uh, than my family would prefer. <laughs> but I, I, I'm obsessively uh, you know, checking my Twitter feed and, and, uh, and uh, checking all the pop culture websites. And you know, part of my job description is I need to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the zeitgeist. Uh, and I, I do that partly because it's my job and partly because I truly love doing that. I, it really interests me. Um, but I, I like to get outside. My daughter's very into nature and being outdoors. She's very different than I was when I was her age. I'd be watching TV eight hours a day. And she'd be like, come on, Dad, let's get outside. Let's go play. So she drags me out, and we have a great time. Um, so I enjoy that as well. We, we live part-time um, uh, on Maui, uh, which is such a, a blessing to be able to, you know, as much as this house is a bit of a getaway and, a, and an oasis, when we're out there, we're really uh, in one of the most remote parts of the world. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's paradise. And, you know, for what it's worth, they still have the, uh, the high-speed internet <laughs> and the satellite TV, so I'm not totally cut off. How has social media changed the music business or the comedy business? Well, uh, both for the better, I, I like to think. Um, you know, uh, MTV isn't really music television anymore. Um, the internet is really where my bread is buttered in, in terms of a place to, to see my material and to advertise and promote it. Uh, and social media is something, quite frankly, that I was sort of dragged onto because I thought, oh, I've already got a website. You know, wh why do I need to be on MySpace or Twitter or Facebook or any of these other things? Um, truthfully, what got me into it originally was the fact that there were Weird Al imitators on these sites, people claiming to be me. Uh, and it's very hard to police the internet. It's hard to make them take down those websites or to uh, you know, call attention to the fact that they're fake. The only real thing you can do is be on there yourself and establish an official presence, and that way all the imitators go away. Uh, so that's what I did. But I found out once I was there, I loved it. I, I loved being on Twitter. I love the fact that any ridiculous random thing I want to say, I can tweet it and three and a half million people <laughs> get to see it immediately. It's kind of mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling, but I'm thinking MTV, when MTV first started, and it was music videos and music acts, really helped to make you. Absolutely, yeah. And you helped to make them. I, I gave it my best shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're talking now, what, early 80s, late yeah. 70s? Yeah, I mean, MTV started, I think, in 1981, and uh, my first album came out in 1983. So it wasn't, you know, uh, concurrent, but I was, I was definitely there for the early days of MTV. Uh, and I like to, to say that I'm sort of a, a, an outlier in the Malcolm Gladwell sense because, you know, MTV and I started pretty much the same time. Uh, and even though my first uh, music videos were very raw and primitive, uh, so was MTV. <laughs> so they didn't mind <laughs> quite so much. And they were looking for content. They were a 24-hour music video channel, and they needed music videos because not a lot of people were making them back then. So virtually anything you gave them, they would put on the air. And if it was good, they played a lot. Oh, Ricky, you're so fine. You play your bongos all the time. Hey, Ricky. Hey, Ricky. Oh, Lucy, you're so fine. How I love to hear you whine. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Weird Al. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Weird Al. Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are running wild. Someone check the face. 
Well, as we've talked here, as you made it from the 70s through the 80s, through the 90s, through the first decade of the 21st century, now deep into the second decade of the 21st century, and not only have you survived, but you've thrived. One could make a case that you're at the very top of your career now. You have an album that introduced itself as being number one on the chart, no small accomplishment in any decade. How have you done this? I don't know. It's a, partly accidental and uh, partly luck and partly just sheer tenacity. I still have a passion for it and you know I just haven't given up. And another big part of the equation is I've managed to surround myself with extremely talented people. I've had the same band since 1982. That must be an all-time record. Well, I don't know, but it's you know I'm you know it's up there. It's certainly up there. But that that's a big part of it because uh, you know I, I surround myself with very talented people, and and that that makes me look good. You describe what you do as parody. More or less, yes. By your definition, what is parody? Well, parody basically is taking uh, something that people are familiar with and tweaking it, uh, making it slightly different, and maybe taking it in a in a different direction than it was originally. Uh, parody is related to satire. It's a very similar thing, but satire uh, is used to make a comment either about a, a bigger societal issue or on the original songwriter or the song itself. But you do parody. I do a little bit of satire, but it's mostly parody. Well, I want, I've written down the dictionary definition okay, let's of hear parody it. and satire, and okay. I want you to comment on it. Now, the dictionary definition, parody is a composition that imitates the style of another composition, normally for comic effect and often applying their style to an outlandish or inappropriate subject. I agree with the dictionary. That's pretty much what you that, do. That's pretty much, yeah. Now, satire, intended to do more than just entertain, tries to improve humanity and its institutions. A satire is a literary work that takes to anyone trying to hold it up to ridicule, mm -hmm. an institution, a person, a way of life, yeah. if you will. I would agree with most of that. Uh, I wouldn't say that all of satire is meant to improve humanity. <laughs> Some of it's just uh, you know, making a snide comment about somebody. <laughs> so you do mostly parody. That's what you love to do. But you mix in a little bit of satire from time to time. Yeah, I mean, uh, satire is fun to do. Um, you know, there, there are a few times uh, when I've uh, my, when my parodies are basically comments on the original songwriter uh, or the original song. I, I did that in the case of Lady Gaga and Nirvana and uh, Billy Ray Cyrus and probably one or two others. Um, I, it's a thin line because I try to not to be mean spirited. You know, uh, a lot of my humor is considered gentle because I, I don't like to step on people's toes. So it, it's it's hard to do a lot of satire and keep it friendly. <laughs> You know, because you're trying to make a point. But you do succeed in that. And it occurs to me in, an, in a time, in an age, in an era marked by cynicism, negative thinking, that you've made a whole career on being nice to people. I, I, I don't think of it that way. A lot of people have, have, have uh, commented on that, and it's, it's very nice. I, I enjoy being thought of as a nice person. <laughs> but it's, it's not, not, think, not, not a calculated move on my part. But first of all, you get permission from people to do uh, parodies of their acts. I do, yes. And if they say no, you don't do it. That's correct. Who's the most well-known person who said no? Maybe that person known as Prince? That would be correct, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've uh, only been turned down a small handful of times in my career, and most of those times have been Prince. Um, and he's never, 
never given a reason exactly. I just think he just does not enjoy the, you know, genre of parody. Did you ever give any consideration to doing parodies of, say, Elvis Presley or the Beatles? Well, I would certainly do that if I could combine it with a, um, a topical subject. Uh, I've certainly done some classic rock songs and gone back uh, in the archives and, and done songs that you know certainly wouldn't be considered current, but I was able to pair the song with a current topic. Like when I did a parody of Don McLean's American Pie, uh, that was a song from 1970, I believe, and I did that uh, in the late 90s. And the reason why that made sense then was because I paired it with a song about the Star Wars prequel, which had just gotten released. So I, I, I'm more than happy to go back and do a classic rock song if, it, if I can make it uh, topical with the subject matter. Oh my, my, this here Anakin guy Maybe Vader someday later Now he's just a small fry And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi Did you know this junkyard... What's next for you? You have this album, you're promoting the album now, but what's next? Uh, I'm slowly getting ready for a, a world tour. Uh, we're going to be starting in May, and it's going to go for about five months, which is the longest tour I've done in a while. Ooh, that's uh, a long tour. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's more difficult to, with a family. I mean, uh, long tours like that were a lot more common in my single days, but now it's a matter of like figuring out when the family can fly out for a weekend, and, and uh, you know, we, we try to maintain some semblance of a family life, even for extended tours. So that, that's the main thing we're working on. There's a, a few other projects here and there, but mostly we're, we're taking steps toward uh, getting the tour started. Can you or can you not foresee a day when you don't do parody? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, my, my record contract is over. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not obligated to do, well, really anything, <laughs> but I still enjoy doing the parodies. Uh, and, uh, you know, as long as it's still fun for me, I'll, I'll keep doing it, as long as I can come up with, with, uh, with ideas for it. So, um, no, I mean, I, I, I think when people are completely tired of me, they'll let me know and then I'll probably lose interest as well. <laughs> Dragons galore and some booze. Okay, to be fair, there's way more booze. Well, for what do you want to be mostly known? Let me put it another way. Your obituary, first paragraph or two, what do you hope will be said? Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> I just know the headline when I die is going to be Weird Al eats it. It's going to ha somebody's going to say that. Um, I don't know. I, I think probably it'll be just a, mostly a recap of my career and my greatest hits and uh, and what I'm known for. Uh, you know, the, the parody songs probably and um, on a smaller scale probably me and my children's books or my my Saturday morning TV show and and various other things I've done in my career and. Um, as, as a footnote, they'd probably say I'm a family man, and uh, um, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe I won the spelling bee in sixth grade. I hope that gets mentioned, because I'm very proud of that. Well, you should be. I should be. <laughs> but at your memorial service, I'm asking you to visualize your memorial service. <laughs> okay. What one work of yours would you hope would be played? Ah. Oh. <laughs> 
don't know if any of my uh, songs are really appropriate for a memorial service. I don't know. It's, it's not really mine to say. Uh, well, please realize it. It's a celebration, after all. This is not a funeral. This is a memorial service. It's yeah. a celebration of your life. And so we, I, we want to play something that you like mm -hmm. and it's evocative of your career and your time in your life. I've, I've, I have a, an instrumental called Welcome to the Fun Zone. So that would probably be nice uh, and mm -hmm. ironic for a, for a <laughs> memorial service. Let's go with that. For those of you not familiar with the song, Welcome to the Fun Zone appeared on the soundtrack of Yankovic's film UHF, a cult classic that has just been re-released for its 25th anniversary. Well, uh, did you grow up in a religious household? Yeah, 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 I did. Uh, my, uh, my mom and dad uh, uh, went to church and I, we would go every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Any hymns from your youth you remember? Uh, sure, you know, let's, let's sing some. Uh, how great thou art, how great thou art. <laughs> very good, Acapella, <laughs> very good, Acapella. So again, at your memorial service, what hymn would you like to play? You're definitely the first person ever to ask me that question. <laughs> How about how great thou art? That's pretty good. <laughs> well, that'd be very nice. <laughs> Billy Graham would be very pleased with you, to say, to, say, to say the least. Have you thought of doing parodies of political figures? Um, I tend to stay away from politics for two big reasons, one of which is when you do political humor, generally you have to take a side, which alienates half of your fan base immediately. Right. Uh, so, and I'd prefer to keep all the fans that I've got. And the other thing is, uh, political humor tends to date very poorly. Uh, usually a, a political song will be popular for a few weeks and then it'll become very dated and certainly not something that you'd want to be playing on stage five, ten years later. And how do you decide what you do? And then once you make that decision, the second part of the question, what's the process of developing the product? Uh, my decisions about what parodies that I do uh, entirely revolve around two things, uh, whether the song is popular and whether I can come up with a clever enough idea. Uh, and there are a lot more popular songs than clever ideas in my head. So I, I can always come up with an idea, but they're not always good. Uh, but if I do happen to, by a stroke of luck, come up with an idea that I like, uh, the next thing is I will uh, ask my manager to contact the management of the songwriter or recording artist. and pitch my idea, my high concept, and see if they'd be open to it. Um, I tend not to write song lyrics or, or you know, write an entire song without knowing if the artist has a sense of humor because they might not, and then it's a lot of wasted effort on my part. Of the people you've parodied, and you've parodied so many people, who had the, the best reaction, or the most memorable reaction? Well, there have been a number. I mean, Michael Jackson was a, a, a huge supporter. He let me do both Eat It and Fat. Uh, and when we did the fat video, that was on Michael Jackson's subway set. He allowed me to actually shoot in his subway. Greg Kinn uh, appeared in my video uh, for I Lost on Jeopardy. I lost on Jeopardy, baby. Um, 
One of my favorite reactions was, uh, was Kurt Cobain, who said that he didn't realize that he'd made it until he heard the Weird Al parody. Uh, Chameleonaire, who was, did Raiden, which I did uh, White and Nerdy based on, uh, he told me that uh, at the Grammys, we, he met me on the red carpet and said that uh, he felt that the reason why he won for Rap Song of the, of the Year was because I had done the parody, because the parody made, made it undeniable that his song hey, was a rap song of the year. That's pretty high praise. Yeah. Must, must have made you feel terrific. It did. Well, what's the best thing that's happened to you in life? Well, this interview ranks high up there. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> no, that's well, a parody. But you know, no, seriously. I mean, there there are things that have happened to me uh, this year alone, which I never uh, ever thought would happen. Uh, getting a number one album is something that I honestly never, in my wildest dreams, thought would happen. I, I kind of feel like it's like it's like the high school nerd being elected homecoming king. You know, it's just like I keep I keep thinking that you know, it's a prank, like there's a bucket of pig's blood that's gonna fall on my head or something. <laughs> uh, but it, I'm very grateful, obviously, and thankful, and that's something that I'll be happy about for the rest of my life. Um, and I mean, that's career-wise. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, um, in the bigger picture, I'm so thankful that I have such a wonderful wife and an amazing daughter, and I've just got you know, uh, so many blessings that you know, sometimes I just can't believe it. Nobody gets through life unscathed. What's the worst thing that's happened to you in life? Um, I, I hate to get into it too much because it's, 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 it's hard to, to remember and think about, but I'd have to say the death of my parents uh, 10 years ago. They both uh, died from uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and it was just, just the most horrific moment in my life um, because it was you know, unexpected. I mean, you know, in the, in, in, I, I knew intellectually that at some point probably I'd have to you know, live through the death of my parents, but I never thought it would be at the same time and, and so abruptly. So it was just, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a pain that I still feel to this day. The, the shock and the horror has worn off a bit, but it's just, um, that was definitely, you know, the, the worst thing that ever happened to me. But weren't you lucky and blessed to have him for as long as you did? I certainly was, and, and, and I do still feel blessed. and, and uh, um, I, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, support group. My, my parents were, were, the, were the best. And they lived long enough to see your success. They did. And they got to meet my daughter, which, which I'm so happy they were able to, to experience that. Well, I certainly want to be respectful of your pain, but was this an accident? You said they died of carbon monoxide poisoning or something else? It, it's true, yeah. Um, the, uh, the flue in the fireplace, I think, was closed. Um, and, and I guess uh, they, they lit a fire, and they went to sleep, and and that was it. So it was sudden, to say the least. Yes, yes. And what did you learn from that? What did you take from that that's been of value to you as, you as you've gone on with your life? Well, just another reminder that, you know, life is short. Things, things happen, things, unexpected things happen. You have to uh, appreciate the time you have with your family. Um, it's, uh, you know, all, all things that I know already, but it just kind of really drives the point home that you just have to be appreciative of, of the people in your life.
I met him in a swamp down in Dagobah Where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda S-O-D-A soda We're great and you suck We're great and you suck We're great and you suck You see there's us and then there's you You suck Well that reminds me, Weird Al, where'd the name come from? Well, Al's short for Alfred. <laughs> oh, the weird part. Um, well, Weird Al was a, a name that I um, took on uh, when I started doing college radio. Um, full disclosure, I think that pe people were calling me Weird Al in the dorms my freshman year before I took it on professionally. I'm not sure why. Uh, I guess they thought I was weird. Uh, but I decided to take it on as a badge of honor, and, and everybody on the campus radio station had some kind of wacky air name, like the, the sheriff, or uh, Macho Mike, uh, or the captain, and I thought, oh, Weird Al? Yeah, sure. And I, I played weird music, so it, it seemed appropriate, and it's one of those things where the name just kind of stuck. But this strikes me as whether you thought of it at the time or not, brilliant. You take what could be a weakness or something that hurt you and made it a strength by saying, okay, I'll just call myself Weird Al. Yeah as a form of empowerment. And what uh, a nice side effect is, I've heard from a lot of kids over the years where peers in school have called them weird or called them a freak or, or made fun of them because they were unusual. And they look up to me and say, well, here's a guy that, you know, proudly calls himself weird and he's okay with it. He's okay being different. So, it, you know, that means a lot to me to know that in some small way, I've been able to give a little bit of uh, encouragement and support to people like that. The accordion, what drew you to the accordion? It seems a, an unusual instrument for you to be attracted to. Yeah, I, I don't believe that I, I begged my parents for accordion lessons. I, I'm not sure exactly how that came about, but I do remember uh, that there was a door-to-door -door music teacher that came around. Back in the days when people would actually go door-to-door. -door. Seems crazy now, but right. back when I was growing up, that was a thing. And uh, somebody came to our door and said, you know, would your child like to take either guitar lessons or accordion lessons? <laughs> I'm not sure why, but my parents thought, why young Alfred would love accordion lessons. <laughs> part of it, part of it may have been because of our last name, because uh, Frankie Yankovic was a very popular accordion player. That's true. America's polka king, based out of the Midwest. Uh, no direct relation, as far as we could tell, uh, but my parents had a bunch of his 78 RPM records in, in the attic, and, uh, and we were very familiar with his work, and we thought, oh, well, there should be at least one more accordion-playing Yankovic in the world. <laughs> So you began taking accordion lessons when? Six, seven? Uh, my first lesson was the day before my seventh birthday. Mm -hmm. And I took lessons for three years, and after that I decided to just learn on my own because they, they don't teach you rock and roll when you take accordion <laughs> lessons. It's either, either polka or classical pieces. And I, you know, I wanted to play the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Kinks, and I wanted to like rock out. And, and I found that to do that, I had to kind of go my own path. I still don't think the accordion is an instrument for rock and roll. It's, it's made inroads. I mean, uh, you know, uh, facetiousness aside, uh, you know, a lot of independent or a lot of, a lot of indie bands are now incorporating the accordion into their instrumentation. Uh, it's, it's a very sensual instrument uh, in all seriousness. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's a very dynamic instrument. And it, it just kind of, kind of got a bad reputation, I think, in the 50s and 60s as being very square and very, being very unhip. Um, but it's, at, at its core, it's really not. You know, I, you know, I, and I'm, I'm saying that in all seriousness. I mean, I, I use it for its comedic value, but at the same time, it's, it's a wonderful instrument, and, and that's slowly getting recognized again. Did you ever think about giving it up, or was there a point when you were maybe a teenager and someone said, Jesus, how, how square can you get? You play the accordion. <laughs> 
Well, none of my friends want to be in their rock bands. I learned that early on. Uh, and I also learned that uh, you know, anytime I would play rock music on my accordion, my friends would think it's funny. So I, I learned that there was humor to be gleaned from the juxtaposition of the accordion and rock and roll. So that, that's something I never forgot. I, I never decided to put it down entirely. Certainly, uh, you know, I, I've used probably less accordion on my albums as, as time went on. My first album was wall-to-wall -wall accordion. And <laughs> nowadays, it's relegated to the polka medley and maybe one or two other songs where it's appropriate. But it's, it's certainly not dominating <laughs> the instrumentation as it used to. I want to go back to the campus radio station for a moment. You've, you've adopted the name Weird Al. Did this give you problems with the girls? I mean, never mind that he also plays the accordion, right. God help us. Uh, I, I wouldn't blame it entirely on that. I think it was more about my personality. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty nerdy. And also there was the age difference because I, I started college when I was 16 years old. So I was a little bit younger than everybody else. I wasn't probably as mature or developed. Uh, and, and, and I was a big nerd, you know? I was, I was socially awkward. Um, I, I think I might have, I wouldn't even say I had a girlfriend in college. I had one girl that I dated for a little while, but I mean, it was, it was tough going. <laughs> well, it, in coming up in, in mid, middle school, were you bullied at any point? I was bullied a little bit. I mean, um, uh, junior high was the worst, or middle school or junior high, whatever you call it. Uh, it's, my, my daughter's in it right now, and she's having a much better experience than I had. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like in PE class, there would be um, uh, kids that would, you know, punch me and mock me. And I mean, it was, I, I, I didn't have a broken arm or anything like that, but it was like, it was harassment. Well, how did you keep from being destructive? Because we know, particularly at that age, being bullied can be very destructive to one's personality. Yeah. Well, it was, um, you know, you know it, it was not a fun time. I mean, my, my middle school years uh, were my least favorite years of my life. And I said that was mostly because of that there were people in school that, you know, would pick on me a lot. Uh, you know, leave, leave tacks on my seat, you know, put gum in my locker, uh, stuff like that. I mean, it was not pleasant, and um, maybe that shaped my personality for better or worse. I'm not sure, but definitely that was uh, that, that's what I remember from being 12 years old. It was it was not a fun time. Yeah. You've been so generous with your time and been generous with yourself. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? <laughs> hmm. Um, uh, can I, can I stay with you, Al? Can I live in your, your room downstairs? Listen, in this beautiful house, I'll ask you that question with some seriousness. Can I come stay with you, Al? Anytime. You're always welcome. <laughs> Be careful what you say. <laughs> well, did you come into this interview saying to yourself, if, if I don't get anything across to Dan Rather, but this one thing, I'll make sure I get that across in the interview. Was there any one thing you wanted to say? I wanted to make sure that people knew that at my memorial service, I want how great thou art. <laughs> now that's a parody. <laughs> Not satire, but a parody. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv.
Well, that wraps up another fantastic episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation come together.